Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. If you're listening to this, congratulations. You've made it past the final Blue Monday in the history of the UK. <laughs> the 20th of January is supposed to be the most depressing day of the year, although of course we know it was made up to sell holidays. But hold tight, something a lot more depressing might be on the horizon. <laughs> Ian laughing there. I'm Ros Taylor, and before we meet today's special guest, let's say hello to our regulars. They're helping me stay optimistic with a combination of flax movies, guided meditation and recitals of Ode to Joy. Ingrid Oliver is an actor, writer and, shall we say, political explorer. After her brief sojourn as a Tory entryist last year, she's joined the Fabian Society to vote in Labour's leadership race. Hi, Ingrid. Hi. <laughs> Last weekend, you took advantage of your new membership to go to their annual conference. How was it? Well, first of all, uh, I've actually been reading the rules on, on voting in the Labour leadership, and I think I may have buggered myself again. Um, <laughs> because I think, and if you've been a member of another party in the last two years, you can't vote. So I'm going to have to ring up oh the Fabians my God. This is and, and play the Romaniacs clips down the phone just to go, it was a joke, I didn't mean it. Um, and and hope that they let me vote, because otherwise that's another 25 quid down Haven't the bloody drain. Haven't told us you're voting for yet. Well, no, that's, that's, that's very true. <laughs> I actually don't know yet. Don't no. Well, I, I don't know yet is the honest answer. But um, no, we had a lovely time at the Fabians, Alex and I. We had a lovely little day out and... Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't know what the Fabians were until a few weeks ago, and um, I was thought they sounded quite glamorous, quite wise, and yeah, it was it was brilliant. We um, there were lots of excellent speakers. They were going to have Lisa and Andy and Keir Starmer, but Lisa and Andy pulled out. But yes, uh, Keir Starmer, who was very impressive, I have to say, um, and there was a lot of it was good. There was a lot of sort of self reflection and and self-flagellation actually to some extent, but it was all quite hopeful, and we all felt quite buoyed, didn't we, by the experience? Yeah. Alex Andreu acts, cooks, sings, writes and puts the political world to rights. <laughs> Hello, Alex. Hello. You were at the conference too, of course. How did you find it? Um, good. <laughs> um, interesting. It was very interesting. Some really good speakers. Um, as a, as a theatre person, I'm always more interested in the subtext rather than what is said. And, and the subtext was just deafening. Um, it, like every decision the party still makes, uh, the emotional background for it is still Tony Blair. Hmm. Every single decision is all about Tony Blair, either pro or anti. Um, and and it, it really struck me, like every comment, every question, every speech, his, his shadow was all over it. And so I think that in the leadership election, the question... Um, the leaders should be asking themselves is how am I going to take this party from pro or anti Blair to post Blair? I think that and I think unless Labour do that, they won't be able to do anything else. Hmm. He's like the ex you never get over. Yeah. And it's not like dating the opposite of him, just a spy. Yeah, him. he really <laughs> is. He, he you know, he's like well, I once dated a banker and he was he was <laughs> an, a twat, so now I'm only going to date hippies. <laughs> Sounds like my entire relationship history. <laughs> Quite spooky. Speaking, speaking of the Labour leadership contest, uh, can we take a moment to mourn Jess Phillips's leadership bid? Mm. Um, the continuity Corbynists really hated her. Um, why was it? Was it just because of her attitude to Corbyn? And you were you were a bit cut up at where, when she left. Yeah, I was gutted. I'm 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 gutted. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't a it wasn't a great campaign. So there's no point pretending that, that it was, and she probably 
might have had a still have had a chance of getting through. And I think she probably came to a judgment that it just wasn't didn't seem to be going that way, and maybe she needed a bit more time. But whichever way you look at it. It is fucking extraordinary online. You mention her name. It's like it's like a fucking 80s horror film where if you say a word in a mirror, then the demons come out and fucking... <laughs> and, then they just, and it's days of that shit. And it's, it goes on for like 48 hours. Six, you're just like, what on earth is going on? This is someone who is like demonstrably not a Blairite, you know, who didn't like, to, didn't support the Iraq war, you know, backed away from labor during that period. But what is her big crime? The only crime she has committed is that she was the person who was prepared to say about Corbyn that it was all going wrong in real time yeah. to actually say it. Whereas yeah, yeah. the others were, you know, back in the background and not quite saying it and whispering away. And on that basis, because they said stuff in the background, they're allowed off. Because she, you know, had the balls basically to actually the temerity to say that this is demonstrably a abject moral and political failure at the time... That's the reason that they fucking hate her so much. So now it's just, it's at pathological levels, the way that she is treated by, by the Corbyn people. It's completely insane. That was Ian Dunn, of course, editor of politics.co.uk. Hi, hello. <laughs> in, in case you'd had me. <laughs> Our guest this week has worked in chip shops as a pizza delivery man and read law at Edinburgh University at the age of 16. We've managed to get two Ians on the show, one with next to no sporting knowledge and one with a lot more than most. (laughs) (laughs) After he helped Heart of Midlothian FC avoid liquidation in 2014. It's Labour's. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I did. It's... <laughs> He's going to tell us all about it. It's Labour's only Scottish Labour MP and a candidate for the deputy leadership, Ian Murray. Ian, welcome to Romaniacs. Thank you very much, and I'm glad you introduced me as the only Scottish Labour MP and not the last, which a lot of people do. <laughs> I'm sure you won't be the last. Maybe the second. Oh, no. Okay. Um, some some listeners want us to stop talking about Labour. Others say we don't talk about Scotland enough. You win some and you lose some. <laughs> but have you have you come to terms with the election experience yet? No. And actually, what Ian's just said about Jess Phillips is absolutely right, because Jess and a few of us have been calling this mess out for some time, and we've seen it coming, not because... We are political animals that seen it coming, but the public were telling us that. They were telling us that the leadership of the Labour Party were completely hopeless, that our, our two big constitutional decisions were wrong in terms of Brexit and Scottish independence, uh, and they just couldn't vote for the Labour Party. And we were screaming this at the leadership for 18 months, and all we got in return was, you're just a Blairite or a Brownite or some other right, and you don't believe in the project, and actually we're winning the arguments but losing the elections. It's a preposterous position to be in. I'm gutted that Jess Phillips has come out mm-hmm. um, of the leadership contest. She's backed my deputy leadership campaign, so I'll have a look at my Twitter feed when I'm finished this to see if the demons are now coming after me. <laughs> but social media is awful for politicians. From a, for, as a Scottish uh, Labour MP, my Twitter feed and social media is appalling with nationalists all over it. Um, mm. Jess gets the same from the Britnats and everybody else. Uh, and all of this stuff that Jess has to go through is appalling. She still leaves a lasting legacy on this leadership contest, though, because I think she might have brought in 50,000, 60,000 new members to vote. How they vote might be crucial to the outcome. Mm. So she's had a lasting legacy on this already, even though she's not gone the distance. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, actually. We'll get this into this in, in depth later, but given it is so tough at the moment, why do you want to be deputy leader? Because it's tough. 
because the party's got a big decision to make. It's either going to be a credible alternative government or it's going to be a diminishing party of opposition. And the people who want the latter, the ones that are saying that the voters got it wrong at the election, and what I've seen in Scotland over the last five or six years is going to happen across the rest of the UK. It's happening in the so-called red wall seats. It's happening across our towns and cities. And for someone like Ben Bradley, the Tory MP uh, for Mansfield, to have a 16,000 majority should shame everybody in the Labour movement. We've lost Bolsover. We've lost big seats like Lee. We've lost five of our six seats in North Wales. We've lost all of our seats bar one in Scotland. That Some of the people in the Labour Party think that's a success. And I just keep saying to them, if you think that's a success, don't vote for me. And if you want the, to continue on this path, the continuity <laughs> candidates on the ballot paper are there for everyone to see. It feels very much like the United Kingdom is breaking apart, as you're saying. Um, the Stormont Assembly only reformed last week and it's already voted to reject Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. Um, obviously, the DUP don't have the same leverage now. Johnson has, has a majority. Um, what can the devolve, uh, devolved governments do now to fight back against him? Well, very little, speaking. I would have thought. I mean, the government's majority is so large that he doesn't even have his own uh, pro-EU uh, colleagues to keep him in check either, which was really the only thing that was keeping this process running in the first place. But the good thing, the positive of all of this is that, or the small positive of all of this is we will leave the European Union at the end of next week. You know, we'll all be distraught at that. But now anything that goes wrong, all the responsibility, all those chlorinated chickens are going to come home to roost and they're going to park themselves <laughs> firmly outside number 10. So any consequence that we now have from Brexit is totally the responsibility of the Prime Minister. And then the public might say, do you know what? All those Romaniacs and Ramoners might have just about been telling us the truth about the consequence of leaving the European Union. And I think that's when the debate will start about what happens next. And I hope the debate gets to a position that the UK decides that it might campaign to go back in. Rejoin. <laughs> Already. Well, I think inevitably that's where we might get to. I mean, it's too early to say that. But if you have the, get to the end of December 2020 and either there's a trade deal that's been so rushed it's appallingly bad or there's no trade deal and no deals back on the table, all of those industries that have been warning for so long, although we haven't left yet, they're going, the reality is going to start to bite and we're going to have to shift our future relationship to fit in with some of the big industries that are the huge employers and the wealth creators in this country. So unless we're able to have the ability to shift, we're not going to be able to resolve the consequences of leaving the European Union. And therefore, I think the natural consequence of that will be people will say, well, actually, if this is so bad and we can't resolve it and we're having to move our relationship much closer, why don't we go back in? We've got a piece on LSE Brexit tomorrow, actually. Sorry, shameless plug. Um, that's Thursday on... Um, what it would actually take for Britain to rejoin, what the EU would demand. And it's quite interesting for those of you who are keeping that flame alive. Anyway, we will return to all this later. But first, an obligatory sporting question to keep our producers happy. Um, <laughs> hearts aren't doing particularly well this year, I'm told. Do you think they can avoid red rele relegation? Oh, absolutely, yes. So just to fill your listeners in, Heart of Midlothian Football Club is obviously Edinburgh's premier club. Uh, it plays in the top division in Scotland, was owned by a Lithuanian who went into liquidation. The, the club was just about to go to the wall and disappear forever. And we managed to get 8,000 people to throw in £15 a month. They've put £10 million into the club. It's now fully fan-owned. Mm -hmm. uh, and doing well, and yes, not doing quite so well in the park, but debt-free, new stadium, great team, uh, fans all together, owned by the fans. It's a huge success story. And you can buy the book. This is our story.club at all online or at all very poor bookshops. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask a question? Are you actually Labour's only Scottish MP or are you Labour's only MP in Scotland? Both. Oh, my wow. goodness. 
That is quite extraordinary. And a Labour government still runs through Scotland. So yeah. uh, just to give you some stats, that if Labour want to win the 2024 election, if that's when it's called, we'd have to win 124 seats. If we win 16 seats in Scotland, which would be a remarkable achievement going from 1 to 16, we would have to take Croydon South, which has a majority of 21.8%. That's mm. an 11% swing, unprecedented mm. political history. Mm. And in fact, it would never happen. If we only remain with one... Myself going into the 2024 election, we need a much bigger swing, which means you would have to win North East Somerset and Jacob Rees Mogg, a 26% majority. That's the scale of what's facing Labour members when they get that ballot paper in front of them for the leadership and the deputy leadership. And people are running away from that as if it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. remarkable. We'll have more from Ian later, plus a look at the future of immigration. It was a poisonous subject, what won it in the referendum, but how will it shape post Brexit Britain? And the question of Britain's food security is back. Is the government's plan for agriculture as green as it seems? And will we still get chlorinated chicken by the back door? That's after a few reminders from Alex. We may be living in a big Ben Bong nightmare of Brexit triumphalism, but this too shall pass. Don't forget Remaniacs Live in Liverpool on Saturday the 15th of February to restore your fighting spirit. Ian, Ros and producer Andrew will be on stage at the Epstein Theatre for an afternoon of steely-eyed futurology. We've already announced one special guest, Liam Thorpe, politics editor of the Liverpool Echo, and now we can announce another. We are thrilled that the great Professor Michael Dugan of Liverpool University, whose brilliant video lectures helped a lot of us make sense of Brexit, will also be joining us. So that's three Romaniacs and two special guests at once. What a bargain. Tickets are on sale now at ticketline.co.uk forward slash Romaniacs. And Patreon people, remember you get a discount on as many tickets as you want. You check your inbox for a reminder of the discount code. Search Patreon Romaniacs to help us keep up the Lord's work in the face of Brexit. And it's ticketline.co.uk forward slash Romaniacs for the Epstein Theatre, Liverpool, on Saturday the 15th of February. Thanks, Alex. Let's come back to Labour Deputy Leadership Candidate Ian Murray. Clive Lewis was perhaps the only other candidate with links to the Remainer sphere, as strong as strong as yours. Where do you stand on the whole, it wasn't Corbyn, it was Brexit issue? Uh, because, I mean, I saw Caroline Flint, for example, um, suggesting this on Twitter, I think, yesterday. Was it, was it really Brexit that lost it for the Labour Party? No. Um, I live in a bit of a Remain bubble. My seat was 78% Remain in South Edinburgh and Scotland was a Remain country and I've been involved in the People's Vote campaign and Best for Britain and all of those things uh, since the very start of the the inception of those organisations. So I live in a little bit of a Remain bubble. So I don't quite see uh, what others may have been seeing, but the bottom line was that even if Brexit was an issue, and it was an issue, it was a secondary or third level issue to the leadership of the Labour Party. And it's it's not me that's saying that to be controversial or to try and have a dig or stab Jeremy Corbyn in the back. It's the fact that that's what people were telling us on the doorstep. So wherever you go from Inverness all the way down to uh, Thurso and all the way through Scotland and all the way down England, that's what people were saying. So if you speak to uh, people like Vernon Coker and Gedling, which was a leave seat, and you speak to Phil Wilson in Sedgefield, he was a very much a Remainer, but he was in a leave seat, or Dave Hansen in Wales, uh, all of those seats all the way through. The number one issue, in their words, that torpedoed their campaigns was Jeremy Corbyn. Now, Brexit might have been an issue, but it feeds through. Lack of leadership feeds into all those issues. And if you don't have faith or credibility in the leadership, then you don't have faith or credibility in what they're saying. 
the, the Labour Party's position at the election was actually probably the best position of any of the political parties in terms of offering a referendum within six months, and that was the only thing mm. that really mattered. But nobody believed it to be true. People say to me now, as a Remainer, what can you do to be pro-EU once we've left the EU? What, what can you do to be pro-EU as a deputy leader? Well, I think you've still got to make the case. I want to start a conversation with the Labour movement and the public called the Labour's Campaign for Britain's Future. And that will not only look internally at how we organise and how we govern and how people govern themselves in a post-Brexit Britain, but how we look out to the world. We've got to repair a relationship with our European partners because we. I was in, I was in uh, Chicago uh, in May uh, last year and the, the brand new congressman for the number six district had taken the seat from the Republicans for the first time and he entered the room he shook my hand and he went, thank you so much for making sure that America is no longer the laughing stock of the world. <laughs> and I just thought that hit home. So we've got a lot of relationships to repair. And as I said earlier, I think as the as the as things move on and start to crystallise, I think there's going to have to be a big debate in the labour movement, but also in the country about what we do with our future relationship. This is not going away, um, and the future relationship is not going to be done in time. And therefore, there's going to be a big, big debate about what we do next. For listeners south of the border. What is it that's gone wrong for Labour in Scotland over the last two decades? Obviously, they've had a pretty strong, impressive leader in Nicola Sturgeon, but what what is the systemic failure for Labour been? Well, it's three things. One is um, the constitutional issues have trumped everything else. Um, if you have a situation where 45% of your electorate hate you, because you decided that saving the UK was in Scotland's interest and in the UK's interest, then you're starting from a position of minus 45. So that was the starting point. If you look at the polls right up until September 2014, the first independence referendum, Labour were on their obligatory 35 to 40%. It halved uh, almost overnight. Uh, and since then, we've not really had an answer to the Constitution. We're neither nationalists nor unionists. We believe in devolution. And until we can formulate a new plan, whether it be federalism or a different way of people organising themselves within the UK, we've really nothing to say. So it's really been a constitutional thing. It's been an electoral thing. Uh, and the third thing is we have just decided to absent ourselves from po- serious politics. And the biggest abstention we've made of serious politics is having a leader like Jeremy Corbyn with a narrative that nobody believed. Um, the best route to Labour fighting back in Scotland and to lance the boil of nationalism is to elect a progressive UK Labour government at UK level. I think I'm right in saying that there still isn't a majority for independence in Scotland. Am I right in saying that? There's not, and that's a big surprise if you think about the Brexit, Boris Johnson, all the other economic downturn that we've had since 2008, you would have thought that it would be 60% consistently in the polls. There's been two or three polls since 2014 that's had the pro-independence movement at 51-52%. So there's no thirst for it. Um, and there's e- even less thirst for a, another independence referendum. You know, if, if Brexit's taught us anything, it's never ask the public a question until you know the answer. David Cameron thought he could just ride roughshod over the referendum, bet the farm and lose it. Um, and that's why a second independence, independence referendum is really dangerous. You could just take the risk and lose it. But at the same time... Uh, you've got a very vocal nationalist minority, I suppose. And how do you try to shift the conversation away from independence when you're talking to nationalist voters? It's very, very difficult because the Scottish government don't want you to talk about any sort of domestic record they've had. People tend to forget they've been in power for 14 years. And over those 14 years, under any measure of any service, any public service, the economy, jobs, anything else, it has declined. They've essentially spent 14 years managing decline. 
Uh, and people just set that aside because the question of the constitution trumps all of that. And you see that now infecting England in terms of the way that Brexit's been operating. It's, you know, you become a yes, no, leave, remain, and everything else becomes secondary. Can, can I ask something? Because it often puzzles me. Has Scotland declined in those terms faster than the rest of the UK? Because I often hear it said that this is what's happening on, let's say, educational standards or jobs or whatever. But I never hear the the, the real comparison because if it's declining, for instance, slower than it is in the rest of the UK, then that's a success, right? So what, what's the answer there's to no, that? There's no... On whichever measure you want to pick, you will get a different answer. Um, so um, in terms of health spending, for example, even David Cameron's Conservative government spent more proportionately on the health service than the SNP did in Scotland. Uh, the slashing of local government in Scotland has been uh, broadly similar to what's happened in uh, England uh, as well. So it, it depends which measure you look at. Um, the bottom line is that Scotland gets £13.6 billion more every year for public services than they spend in England. So there's even a bigger spend. So it's really difficult to compare the two. But mm. on every internal measure, including things like education, Scotland's absolutely plummeted down the international rankings, particularly in maths and science. So where does that money go? Where does that extra money go? Well, that's a big question. What's the mismanagement? as it were, that you, the, that you the, claim. The big question is, is, is where is political choice, isn't it? I mean, there's money there to spend. The Scottish government have decided to spend it on things that matter to them. Um, the public are still voting for them on a number of uh, different matrices. So so it's really difficult to know uh, mm. how, how they should spend. I mean, we have some things in Scotland you don't get it in the rest of the UK. Uh, free tuition fees is one of them. Uh, which is obviously a huge cost. Um, we've got free prescriptions. Prescriptions. Huge cost. Yeah. So, but these kinds of things are um, giveaways to the middle class, really, in that sense. They're not. They're not where I would divert money to. Of course, Scots Scots pay more tax as well, so the tax levels are higher. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more money going in, and no, no, no visible improvement of on in, on any internal measure. It's very difficult to compare across borders. Given England's taking Scotland out of the EU effectively, how how does the union benefit Scotland? Well, Brexit's bad. Brexit's bad for the UK and bad for Scotland. But independence on top of that would be like cutting off your head to spite your face, never mind your nose. <laughs> okay. So, you know, all the arguments that we would all make around this table about why Brexit's bad times that by 10, and it's the same arguments. All the wrong-headed arguments for Brexit are the same wrong-headed arguments for independence. And that's why it's really frustrating when nationalists make the arguments against Brexit and they rightly make the arguments. Uh, they're all the right arguments to make and then in the same breath turn them completely in the opposite direction to justify Scottish independence. So a border, you'd require a border because that's what's being argued in the Irish Sea or in the, on the, on the mainland in Ireland. You would a different currency. You would be turning away from your biggest trading partner. Um, so all of those big things, those big arguments about Brexit are exactly the same in Scotland but with bells on. On our podcast for Patreon subscribers, Alex said Scotland's nationalism has a different flavour from perhaps other kinds of nationalism and desire to be more open to the world, whereas the nationalism that drives Brexit is more insular. Um, do, do you think that's true? Well, it depends on how you want to measure it. Nationalism is nationalism is nationalism. It all means the same thing. Um, you know, Nigel Farage uses take back control, the narrative of the Scottish nationalists to take back control. Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson say that Brussels is running the country. Um, Nicola Sturgeon would say it's Westminster. Um, 
the uh, spending our own money would be the arguments in terms of oil in Scotland, which is the same arguments that the Brexiteers make. So these arguments are all the same. Admittedly, yes, of course, the immigration debate is much, uh, much uh, more um, subtle in Scotland because we need migrants to do the jobs that no one else will do and we need migrants for the economy. So that's a slightly different argument. But it's a slightly different argument in Scotland because we don't have much migration. You, sorry... No, I was just humping with general admiration for the eloquence of the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Humph away. (laughs) (laughs) We we know you nominated Jess Phillips and you were a strong backer of hers. And now she's backed um, Lisa Nandy and said that Keir Starmer would be her second choice. Are you going to follow follow that uh, her recommendation or? Yes, well, I'm a big supporter of Jess, but I only nominated her to get her on the ballot paper. I don't think a deputy leadership candidate should have any sort of preference for leader because we have okay. to work with anyone who becomes uh, the leader. I've known Lisa with the same intake. Intakes tend to stick together from 2010. Um, I think the country would see Keir as being someone who can walk through number 10. Um, the big thing that we need to make sure we do is we get the leader that the country can vote for um, and the country can see the Labour Party's back on the park. If we go for continuity, continuity Corbyn, I fear for the future. So not Rebecca Long-Bailey? Well, until... uh, I mean, I will qualify that and say if Rebecca wants to change her narrative and her big announcement this week is the reselection of EMPs, if I had a pound for every single person who said to me on the doorstep, I'm not voting Labour because Labour doesn't have a policy of compulsory reselection for MPs, I'd have less than a pound. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know... It's it's a completely pointless argument, a completely pointless exercise. And if that's the offer to the country, then actually Labour Party members have to decide where they're putting their cross and they surely can't think that that's the way forward. In a nutshell, for Labour Party members and maybe new Labour Party members who are listening to this podcast, what's the reason to vote for you? It's very important to have a Scot at the top of the Labour Party. It sends out a message to all the nations and regions of this country that the Labour Party is listening and the country matters. But also it's about organisation, it's about credibility and it's about making that choice about a credible alternative government versus a party of perpetual opposition. I want to go with the former and I'd, I'd hope that new Labour Party members and old Labour Party members would make the same choice. <laughs> Let's try something a bit new. In 2020, we're promising to keep the podcast positive, upbeat and forward-looking. We're going to suggest... I, I, by the way, I didn't sign up to this fucking <laughs> at all. Except for Ian. We're going to suggest one good and useful thing that listeners can do each week, something to keep the Brexit demons away. So this is the debut of a brand new regular slot we're calling To The Barricades. Ingrid's going to kick it off. Ingrid, what can the listeners do this week to advance the cause of righteousness a few millimetres while we're still <laughs> using millimetres? <laughs> by the way, I love To The Barricades. I feel like I'm in Les Mis, which is <laughs> my favourite musical. So that's great. Um, so what can we do? So here's my pitch. Defend the BBC. Um, I want to talk about the BBC uh, in response to an article in The Guardian this morning about uh, Dominic Cummings and some old blog posts. There's always old blog posts in which he argues that we should be aiming for the end of the BBC in its current form and claims that the BBC is the mortal enemy of the Tory party, uh, which presumably explains why he thinks ministers shouldn't appear on the Today programme or be interviewed by Andrew Neil, <laughs> the absolute coward. Now, I know as a country that we all love a good moan and as Romaniac's panellists, you can argue it's our literal job. Um, <laughs> 
And we have often on this show bewailed the Brexit coverage on the BBC. But as someone who's lived uh, abroad in Germany, Kuwait, Italy and the US and seen what their state broadcasters have to offer, uh, let me tell you that the BBC is something we should be fiercely proud of and clutch to our chests. If sometimes there are guests on, say, Question Time that we don't like, ahem, Lawrence Fox, ahem, then we have to remind ourselves that it is within the purview of the BBC to reflect the views and mores of all taxpayers, even if they are massive bellends. I remember when I worked at the Beeb, uh, some of the more Oxbridge-leaning comedy producers would despair that Mrs Brown's boys was a thing, but the commissioners recognised it was their duty, quite rightly, that they cater to everyone's needs. FYI, Mrs Brown's Boys was consistently the most watched television show on Christmas Day for about 50,000 years. Hmm. So there you go. Uh, So when we get a bit precious about programming, remember it is not your BBC or my BBC, but it is our BBC. And that is a good thing, even if it sometimes doesn't feel like it. And if Boris Johnson comes for the licence fee, make no mistake, it will be the end of the BBC as we know it. It would struggle to continue to provide local news services, national radio stations, high-quality, world-beating drama, comedy, documentaries, and a special mention to Strictly, without which I genuinely don't think I would have got through Brexit. (laughs) Uh, So what can we do? Uh, As we approach the midterm review of the BBC's charter in 2022, so it's just around the corner, uh, let us circle our wagons around our precious national broadcaster and defend it from the attacks that are inevitably heading its way. We cannot let Cummings turn the BBC into a propaganda arm of the Conservative Party full of political ads for Boris and his brilliant big league trade deals with the US. So when you see people laying into the beeve on Twitter, you can agree that yes, it has many flaws, but by God, we are lucky to have it. You can show the beeve some love. Uh, if you watch a programme you like, email them. Leave a comment on their online section, which you can find at bbc.co.uk. Uh, Because believe me, it makes a huge difference to programme makers to know that their stuff is appreciated and it emboldens them to defend it. Uh, This is not the first time the BBC has come under attack. In the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher tried to wield her axe, but was forced to back off in the face of public opposition. Uh, She complained that every time I try and attack the BBC, people come out of the woodwork to defend it. So come on, you Romaniac woodworms. Let's come out and defend our bee because bloody hell we'll miss it when it's gone. And speaking of the BBC, next up, immigration. This week, the corporation published a massively detailed briefing on immigration in an attempt to distinguish the facts from the myths. Better late than never, you might say. Among its findings were that people think there are more immigrants in the UK than there actually are, but the British are more positive than other nationalities towards immigrants. None of which seems likely to stop immigration being used as a political weapon. We're now told that Boris Johnson is preparing to implement stricter points-based rules on EU immigration by 2021, two years before Theresa May promised to put them in place. Ian Dunt. Hello. Businesses. Oh, this is great when we have another Ian. Yeah. It feels like I'm back in school, so I get the full name every single time. Just call me Dunt. Dunt. (laughs) Master Dunt. (laughs) Dunt. Businesses... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it, okay, it sounds weird. I, I regret it, I regret suggesting it. Don't, Julia. <laughs> okay. Um, Ian Dunt, businesses are being given until the end of this year to prepare for the trade deal, if there even is one, and then at the end of next year to prepare for a sudden lack of an unskilled migrants. How much of a risk is that? Well, it's fucking huge. That You don't... Um, I would say every sector that i have spoken to over the last four years bar none mentions the immigration thing and you're talking to people in industry and i mean 
like disparate from food and from food and guys that work in food and drink to guys that work in broadcasting to guys that work in video games to guys that work in pharmaceutical it doesn't matter who you speak to it's always the same thing like we need the best people here and it doesn't mean you don't train up the the, the fucking grotesque standard grotesque slur of the sort that you saw from me and duncan smith this morning, which is basically saying, oh, and it's because of the immigration that we're not training people up with skills. It's like, you, you're the fucking government. You fucking train them up with skills. <laughs> but it's not like an either-or binary opposition. You need to bring people in while you're doing the training and for nothing else. So in that, it, it's a significant problem. But then also, and of course, there's the morality, which you know we, we discuss and I've discussed at length of what that entails. But also then there is the impact of what it has on our negotiation strategy. Um, we are trying to keep immigration away from the trade talks that we are having. Now, that is strategically like a, a profoundly dim-witted thing to have done because it gave us leverage. It allowed us to say, look, we'll actually be quite open on immigration in these sectors. It happens to do us lots of good. And in exchange, it might allow us a little bit more, you know, for instance, mutual recognition assurances or whatever else that you're trying to trade during that point. Because we've extracted them, we lose all of that as well. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a double fuck up. Which is no, it's a triple fuck because of the morality. It's, it's a triple <laughs> fuck up. No, no, it's a quadruple fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the quadruple bit. Actually, you speak to anyone who's involved in one of the fastest growing economies in the world that we can deal with, India, mm. and their number one ask is a relaxation of uh, mm. migration and immigration yeah, yeah. laws. Mm-hmm. And if the government are turning around and saying we're not doing that, you're going to end up in a situation where India are going to go. Well, we're not dealing. Mm-hmm. Because if we can't get people in, why should we do a trade deal with you? Now, India is one example, but there are hundreds right across the world where the number one ask of the government's uh, the trade uh, position deal would be, I want you to relax your migration laws. Mm-hmm. W- would anyone like to offer a, a quintuple fuck-up? Yeah. So should, we can, so we can, we just turn, start collect- we can turn this into... <laughs> <laughs> nobody ever expects this one. They're one <laughs> secret weapon. Anyway, sorry, go on. Ian Murray, um, actually, Ipsos Mori data shows that since the vote in 2016, public concern over immigration has gone down with the EU and the NHS rising instead in its place. Um, do people think Brexit uh, immigration is sorted? Well, why, why has it stopped being a salient issue for them? It's probably because it's not in the front of the Daily Mail every day. Mm-hmm. Mm. But the biggest frustration for uh, opposition politicians, Labour politicians and myself, has been that we've started this whole immigration debate from the platform of the false information and, and false narrative. And the false narrative has been created by a right-wing media that immigration is bad for this country. And we all know it's not. All the figures show that it's not. All our industries tell us that it's not. Um, everyone tells us who creates a job in this country, it's absolutely necessary. So we've started from a position of it being bad when it's not. And therefore, if we'd started a narrative that was much more positive, immigration wouldn't have been an issue. Now, the pace of change in some communities is an issue, but the government in 2010 scrapped the migration fund that allowed uh, local authorities to bid for additional funds if the pace of change was too quick. So, yes, there is some issues to be addressed in terms of pace of change, but it's a public policy failure, lack of P1 places, unable to get a GP um unable to get a house, those kinds of things are public policy problems, not migrant problems. For listeners south of the border, P1, that's the first year of primary school, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah, yeah. Ingrid, the BBC's data included a map of the places in the UK and then coloured in dark red where there were high proportions of immigrants. Um, is is that kind of well, well advised? Is it just reinforcing the idea that immigrants can move into areas of Britain but never be really British? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think it depends on who's looking at the map. I mean, if, if, you know, if you have someone who's looking at the map who's like, well, 
I hate immigrants, then, then obviously that's going to make them angry. If you've got someone like me who's looking at it going, oh, that's interesting. That's just stats. That's data. Because you can't cherry pick the, the, the facts that you like or the data that you like. We're supposed to be on the side of people who like uh, sort of evidence-based and, and, and facts. So, so the facts themselves shouldn't we shouldn't be afraid of them but, but what you have to do is then go explain to people why they shouldn't be afraid of those facts uh, or they shouldn't be angry about those facts and state the positive case for immigration Alex Johnson is talking about putting people before passports with his immigration policy and apparently the £30,000 income threshold uh, for skilled migrants which ruled out people like nurses who don't earn that mm. much yeah, yeah. Is, going to, is going to go and be replaced by a points based system is, is that going to be an improvement? Yes, I mean, I mean, absolutely, it's going to be an improvement because any time you create a bright line, people are going to fall the wrong side of it. Um, but uh, he's creating just a different line. People are still going to fall on the wrong side of that when you're talking about a point system. Um, the The problem is that you cannot have a split focus on the intention of your immigration policy. You cannot have an immigration policy that is designed both to appease people by showing that we're cutting immigration and to increase immigration because the, the economy actually needs it. And and that's been the pincer throughout the last decades, really, to, trying to pretend like you're cutting immigration when you as a politician know that you have to keep it either at current level or increase it in order to facilitate mm -hmm. e economic growth. Um, I've said it before and I'll say it again. There aren't a wealth of options. You have to either produce a workforce by having encouraging people to have more children, which at the moment the Conservatives are actively uh, going against by putting, for instance, a two-child limit on, on uh, um, child tax credit, or you have to import a, a labor force, or you have to accept a shrinking economy. There is no magical fourth option. You've talked a lot on the podcast about how much EU migrants are needed in social care. Um, certainly seen that myself in recent weeks because my father's just gone into care. Um, the BBC data reflects it too. Is there anything that can be done to prevent a crisis in the social care sector after Brexit? It's partly out of our hands because the 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 most significant lever to encourage people to come back into that sort of profession is the value of sterling. Um, and unless you you can make sterling a very strong currency again, I'm afraid the money people make working in care, it just won't be an attractive salary so they can send some money back home. And that is the biggest driving factor for it, you know. So... Yeah, if you can make the currency strong again, but then you're doing other things too. Um, so I'm afraid it's a perfect storm of um, migrants considering the UK both hostile in attitude and less profitable because sterling has plummeted. Um, so you have to fix both those things, and I don't know how you could begin to do that right now. Ian Murray, will immigration always be a weak point for Labour? Because if you ignore it or make the case and you're open to attack from the right, but every time the party tries to take on legitimate concerns about immigration, you end up with a tough-on-immigration mug. I think the issue has to go beyond talking about immigration because the biggest problem with immigration is the fear of it. 
And the fear of it comes from economic decline and comes from people feeling as if they don't have a stake in society. And that whole analysis about the economy not working for the vast majority, I think, was the right analysis to have. I don't think anybody would really disagree with that. And therefore, if you can sort some of those issues, the issue around immigration goes away. But actually, the key to all of this is exactly what we've just heard. You can't do both. And you've got to make the case for why you need immigration. Um, isn't it interesting that the fruit picker in Boston who funded a lot of the Leave campaign couldn't get people to pick his fruit this summer? Well, hey, that's the result of it. So I think we have to start from a position of being honest about these kinds of issues. And I think the Labour Party and the Labour movement would be in a much stronger position to be honest about why we need immigration, why it's important to our communities, and where there are problems, what we would do to deal with them. And that's much more of an honest conversation to have with the public. Isn't the problem that 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 precise fruit picker would would vote leave again? That he that didn't the the economic impact was didn't matter to him, um, which is a problem. You you know we can talk about we can talk about the benefits of immigration as much as we want, but at the end of the day, uh, not everyone is going to agree with us. Sure, sure, but there there are things you can there are things you can do to fix the narrative. I guess. I mean, for instance, having. For, for the last 20 years, having student numbers as part of your net migration figure, I mean, I cannot tell you how fucking insane that mm. is. Mm. Literally is lumping the people who come here in order to live and work with the people who come here quite literally as customers to spend their parents' money. I mean, we might as well lump tourists mm. in with the migration figure oh, if we're going to lump students. I would sign up to that. But you know, now, if we can get rid of the tourists and bring in loads more immigrants, I will fucking vote for that party right now. Like, <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. You can't. The, the including students was insane. insane. It was crazy. We have to line up the thing that is good for the country and the thing that we anyway often do in policy terms with the thing that the government says about it. Now, you look about like the new Labour. Just remember, it, even during new Labour, new Labour had a pretty sensible immigration policy. What it also had was this vicious asylum policy. I mean, there was a point where Tony Blair was talking. David Blunkett wrote in his diary, Tony Blair doesn't want any more asylum seekers coming into the UK. And this was the period where the press... Do you remember the fucking copy of The Sun where they said the asylum seekers ate the Queen's swan? <laughs> they said... It's a famous... Oh. They said that they kidnapped... Oh my God. <laughs> and ate a swan. That's Trump's Freddy Stars hamster, isn't it? <laughs> and of course, later people looked into it fucking the whole thing. It's completely made up. Yeah, yeah, you know, there was a period... Wasn't, wasn't wow. there a period where there was an entire two-thirds of the Express with stories about asylum seekers? Wow. And it was similar with the mail, just churning out these lies. And then when, of course, they look at it, they found I mean, most of them were connected to crime. You know, saying asylum seekers created crime. Of course, when they did the stats, they actually found there was a slight drop in crime in areas that got lots of asylum seekers coming in. Um, I mean, it's just nonsense made up. But what you had was a government that said, well, we will, we will kind of substantiate the rhetoric... But the policy itself will go in a different direction. And I suspect that that's where we might end up with Boris Johnson. He'll probably fiddle. Maybe he's, it looks like he might fiddle with the income benchmark. Might make it a little bit easier to bring in people you know, from outside of Europe. And yet he's going to have to placate the immigration rhetoric within his own party, which is the same old fucking hypocritical British bullshit on this issue of we'll take in the people, but then we'll treat you like shit and just throw slurs at you when you come in because we think that's an easier way and of doing it. And get rid right. of you the moment we don't need that, you anymore. Right. Which is, right. Which is effectively what happened with the 2004 for enlargement 
take. You see, it's important not to formulate policy on the basis of a rewritten history because everyone now sees, you know, Labour opening the doors as in not taking the the sort of period of grace that they could have taken in 2004 as a huge problem. It wasn't a huge problem at the time. The country heaved a sigh of relief at the time because literally we didn't have enough trades people to to facilitate the massive growth that was happening. We needed desperately builders and engineers and electricians and plumbers. And the country heaved a sigh of relief when these people chose to come here and work. The, the time this turned into a problem was after 2008. That after the financial crisis, it was when this gathered pace and, and began to be seen as a problem. And 2010, of course, was the, the seminal moment of the, the Gordon Brown bigoted woman um, malarkey. So we can't go back and say that was a problem in 2004. That was absolutely the right thing to do in 2004. And you can't go back and say it was wrong and we must formulate a policy that wouldn't do that again. It was right. What we must do is formulate a policy that basically provides the infrastructure in the areas we think will absorb the majority of the migrant population, which is entirely predictable because migrants go where jobs are. You can literally predict it to the number. So you know this amount of people are going to go there and you need X extra school places and X extra GPs. We just don't do it. We're rubbish at doing it. But immigration is one of those political problems where the it highlights the problem with politics at the moment because immigration is one of these things where rather than having evidence-led policymaking, which is exactly what you've just talked about by providing that infrastructure where immigrants are required and the jobs where they're required to fill, we've got policy-led evidence-making because the government have decided what the policy should be and they're trying to find the evidence to justify it. And that's been a problem with politics, I think, for certainly the last 10 years, if not longer. What really makes government work? And why do things go wrong? What's really going on in the engine room of policy? Every week in Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government, we look at who and what determines the way that we are governed. You don't just leave a pot of money on the side of the road for businesses to pick up. Three and a half years after the referendum, six months after we were supposed to have left, every single option is on the table. We're obviously in a very odd time where things can change in a matter of minutes. You can get Inside Briefing from the Institute for Government every week on your favourite podcast app. Finally, food security. Glorious food security. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be taking back control of our food policy, apparently, and the government has laid out new food security plans as it looks to diverge from the EU's common agricultural policy. The bill they brought back to the Commons on Thursday had lots of green stuff in it. Farmers will no longer be paid for owning land, but rewarded for delivering public goods, including climate crisis mitigation, flood protection, proving wildlife habitats and protecting soil. Sounds great, except there's no provision in the bill to prevent trade deals from bringing food produced at a lower standard into the UK. That means all the greatest hits like chlorine-washed chicken and hormone-injected beef. We've just published a piece on LSE Brexit by Richard Byrne of Harper Adams University, pointing out that UK farmers will both have to compete with other countries who use lower standards and cheaper methods, and they'll lose access to the single market, so they'll be squeezed on both sides. 
Ian Dunt, how's your soil knowledge? Ian, Ian Dunt. <laughs> <laughs> how's yeah. your soil knowledge? That's my, my soil knowledge. It's fu- there's fuck all. I've got nothing. I've got nothing for you. Have you ever soiled yourself, though? <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I would encourage everyone to vote for you. In <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but isn't it useless to try and revolutionise British farming if cheap, unregulated food imports are going to tank it anyway? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, this is the will we agree to it is the thing. And I mean, I, I don't know, man. I've been wrong about a bunch of stuff recently. I mean, I didn't think fucking, you know, Labour voters would, would vote for Boris Johnson. I thought they'd be less likely to vote for him than Theresa May. So it's not exactly. So, you know, couch it in all the fucking red flags you want. It seems to me that a, a US UK trade deal is a very hard political sell back home when it comes to the chlorine chicken and micro, antimicrobials and hormone injected beef. I think that's a hard sell. Um, and I'm not sure whether you're going to be able to find a way of doing that and delivering on it. I don't think that that's a necessary endpoint of where we go to from here. I mean, the truth that's facing farmers in the whole food industry is that, I mean, we were talking about quintuple fucked before. I mean, that is potentially where they're heading. Like they've got regulatory change with the EU that's going to hold it up. They've got customs hold up that's going to hold up. Uh, they've got rules of origin for fucking food products. You know, I mean, we send our chickens off to Rotterdam to get slaughtered often and then bring them back to change to get changed into ready meals. Now, what is that chicken now? Is it a British chicken? How do you show that it's a British chicken? What happens when you take that cut up bit of chicken that was sort of a bit Dutch and a bit British and then put it into a fucking frozen pizza and add it to the to the bread? We don't know where the bread came from, where the tomatoes come from to prove your rules of origin requirements, let alone what's going to happen to them with immigration. You put all of that together and you think that this industry is in major, major problems. It works in just in just like so many other industries. So when you look at food in the UK, not just I mean, not just farmers, but food, they're facing a lot of problems. And then, of course, the potential for cheap imports coming from elsewhere. So, I mean, really, those are the guys that are looking right now. Oh, and I even forgot about tariffs. So how do you say? Because that's beyond five. Five is quintuple. What's six? Sex tuple. Sex tuple fucked. There's a good party tonight. That, that, that's a niche market in the that's porn industry. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's how it looks for them. Yeah. Ingrid, does the argument that you have to pay more for better food, does it actually cut through to consumers? I mean, is it the state's job to make sure people have food produced to a high standard or is it more important to make sure everyone could afford the basics? Um, do you know what? I don't know what the answer to that is, actually, because ha- having lived in, in the States for a bit, I remember, and I and I was I had no money, and I was uh, working in a youth hostel, uh, in in turn for bed and board, um, and I couldn't afford all I could afford food wise was, <laughs> God, I'm really laying it on thick. All I could afford food wise was was tins of beans from the local 99 cent store, which is absolutely true, because fresh food is so prohibitively expensive in the US, and even going back now, now that I got a bit more, bit more money, I need a bit more. Um, if you want to eat healthy or well in the US, it is really, really expensive. And that is where, that is, is it, you know, and that's why people often eat fast food and there's an obesity and a health crisis. So is it the, gov- is it the government's duty to provide decent food? Probably not, um, as long as it doesn't kill people. Um, there's an argument that they did. That's that's the, the basic duty that they, that they just need to provide food that's not going to kill people. But it just contributes to I suppose, a general feeling that the, it's life's a bit shit, <laughs> and the government doesn't really. It's just going to do the absolute bare minimum to make sure that its citizens don't survive. But in terms of what Ian was saying, you know, you're not being able to see a US UK trade deal flying 
because of things like chlorinated chicken and hormone injected beef. I, I just, I mean, the argument that I, I hear a lot, and I, th- I think people just, they go, well, if it's good enough for the US, which is the number one superpower in the country and allegedly the, the sort of, you know, the leader of the Western world and free world, then it's good enough for us. Why wouldn't we? Why would we not? Yeah, they use that. And, and whenever I've had radio debates, they'll, they'll often do a thing where they're like, would you eat meat when you're in the US? And of course, my answer to that is I'm a fucking filth wizard and I'll put anything. I mean, I eat the fucking hot dogs on the Charing Cross yeah. Road at one yeah. in the morning. I mean, I have yeah. no, literally no standards. But that isn't, I mean, you know, that, that's not necessarily the, the way that you'd have the debate. I think you can always have it as, I mean, people have this sense of the US. It's all wrapped up in ideas around like the NHS and mm, yeah. guns in schools and, you know, having to pay for a liberal. You, you can just sort of go, you know, they do things. It's the World West over there. That's how the US does things. But we have a bit more. And I think if you can couch the argument in those terms, I, I, to me, that seems a pretty easy political argument to win. That doesn't necessarily that's, mean we'll win no, it. No, but that's the, it's, it's whether if you ask the average UK citizen whether they identify more with like a sort of a, a sort of Swedish or a European or socialist model or the US that I think most people would go with the US. I think they feel intrinsically mm. more mm. linked yeah, yeah. to them. So to I think it. people are genuinely excited the idea of a UK-US trade deal. The, the Anglosphere, isn't it? The dreaded Anglosphere. Yeah, of course. There's a very funny Christina Lonzo stand-up bit about her going into a sort of organic store to put down a deposit on a tomato <laughs> <laughs> with a view to buying it in a couple of months. So she can well, I'm, I'm always <laughs> amazed how much, how much corn there is in the US and they well, just stick corn in everything because they basically subsidise yeah, their corn farmers, absolutely. don't they? And yeah. it's strange in a way that such a free market should do that. Mm. When you think about it, well, it's, it's, it is. It's all economics at the end of the day, isn't it? It'll be, it'll be. We'll end up in a situation where people can afford to can have nice organic chicken, and people who can't mm. won't. But that's sort of what it's like at the moment, anyway, isn't it? So, yeah, but it'll be further apart. Yeah, won't yeah. It? But some Brexiteers want us to be self-sufficient in food. Um, the, as long as 2014, Liz Truss was saying it was a disgrace that we imported two thirds of our cheese and apples. Oh, that is a profoundly moronic thing to say. <laughs> it is moronic, yeah. Um, particularly as you know, apples are only good for quite a short time, but we won't go into that. And we tend to we tend to export the fish we catch, and we import the fish we actually eat in Britain. Ian Murray, you'll you'll probably know about that because obviously, Scotland fishing is a fairly big industry. What? You're, I mean, they, 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 it makes up less than 1% of GDP, but it's still a crucial issue in the Brexit debate. Why, why do you think farming and fishing occupies such an important place in the UK psyche? I think it's because it's iconic. I mean, this, this stat may be incorrect, but it's broadly, it'll be broadly correct. More people make lawnmowers in the UK than fish. And nobody's going on about the lawnmower industry being damaged by uh, Brexit but it's because it is iconic and it is about your Mm. territorial waters and it's about your own food but it highlights the big issues of of Brexit there's no doubt that people in broad terms who are involved in the fishing industry voted to leave there's no doubt people involved in agriculture and farming voted to leave and I think over the next 12 months we're really going to see a problem for those industries Um, you talk about Scotland in terms of fishing the biggest one at the moment is whiskey Uh, 25% tariff that the Trump administration has put on. The mood music was that that tariff was going to be reduced or scrapped. In fact, it's now going to go up. And the Scotch whisky industry are thinking, well, you know, if this is the post-Brexit Britain we're going to live in, we're a very small country unable to take on the might of America and a president can just sign off these trade uh, these trade wars at a whim, then I think we're in real trouble. Um, and I don't know how we've got the might and the power to be able to get out of that without having a bigger trading block. Perhaps we should join the European Union. <laughs> is it? I mean, is it possible, and I know I'm straying vaguely into conspiracy theory territory here, 
But is it possible that because, you know, the UK has such low tariffs with America on most things at the moment, in order to to kind of big up the benefits of a potential trade deal, they're artificially sort of boosting them now. So they can then say to whiskey producers, yay, look, we got you a, a really good tariff on whiskey when well, in fact yeah, it's gone right. back to what it was before because what will happen now i suspect come the first of february is the american administration will say to the uk administration uh, we will lower or we will reduce or we will scrap uh, whiskey uh, duties if you do the same for bourbon and american bourbon tariffs in uh, obviously europe is, is quite high so they'll scrap them or reduce them in the uk they'll take it to, from 25 percent to 10 or zero yeah, yeah. on whiskey and everybody will think that's a huge success well we're just back to where we started but in actual <laughs> fact we're now being able to uh, import lots of american bourbon much cheaper mm. and that will damage the whiskey market so all of this stuff is a chess game that i think mm. we're losing because we're not got not got enough pieces to play yeah Alex, Sajid uh, Javid was saying this week, basically, that we're not going to have a regulatory alignment anymore or we'll deregulate whatever we want. How how big is the rude awakening going to be when the trade talks actually begin? Is it all just rhetoric at the moment? Look, um, Ursula van der Leyen last week said level playing field is the most important thing for us. Sajid Javid this week said we're willing to give you anything except a level playing field. So I suspect they're just the opening salvos of the negotiation. They're both adopting sort of positions from which they can move towards the middle. Um, and also as an added cynical sort of incentive for Sajid Javid, it suits him to allow the markets to price in little by little worst case scenarios so that whatever comes afterwards actually boosts the market because they're going to go, it's not as bad as we thought. Hmm. Um, So I think that's what's going on at the moment. And we're going to see a lot of that. We're going to see a lot of doom and gloom uh, being basically briefed by the government in order for the markets to be depressed so that when the deal finally materializes, and it will be a very thin document, um, the markets will experience a bit of a boost and the government can say, look, they told you Brexit was going to be terrible. But in fact, you know, just like Trump did by constantly pointing at the markets whenever they went up going, I did that, but never when they went down. Isn't it? Don't you think it's interesting that that what Sajid Javid said about not aligning uh, two years ago? I'd have been like, "What the? Oh my God! Does he not? What an idiot! Oh shit!" And I'd have been on Twitter looking at trade people, <laughs> legal experts talking about it. I'm like, "What? What is he talking about?" But after two years of all of this constant toing and froing and double, you know, backing down, and you just, which is a relief in some ways, you just read that and go, "Meh, that'll change tomorrow." Also, a majority of the electorate. This stuff doesn't have cut through. I was mm. um, um, on the radio with a um, deputy political editor of The Express um, on Sunday, and she was saying to me that the two issues their newspaper is keeping a BDI on, um, and they're the only ones that ma- matter, are one, fishing, and two, if anything looks like it's going to affect the NHS. So they're the only two sort of emblematic things that... Um, that right-wingers will push as a narrative of whether the deal is going well or badly.
Before we finish up, here's a quick message from Andrew. Well, actually, it's an important message from listener Alan Drake. Have a listen to this. This is proper pub quiz information here. I work at the Council of Europe in Strasbourg, he says. On the 31st of January, the European flag will be lowered over many official buildings in the UK. Maybe some crazy breakfasters will even trample or burn it in Parliament Square. But in fact, this flag belongs not only to the EU, but also to the Council of Europe, of which the UK remains a member. Our organisation is entirely separate from the EU. The flag was invented by the Council of Europe in 1955 and only shared with the EU in 1986. <laughs> Full disclosure, when I arrived for work at the Council in 1996, I discovered the original designs for the flag in a card board box in my office it's got the original flag so the upshot of this is it's not the eu flag it's the council of it's the european flag so you can with impunity continue to fly your european flag after the 31st of january and nobody can come up to you in the pub and say take that bloody flag down nobody come knock on your front door saying take that flag down in your front garden it's entirely legit it's a pub quiz question. You no longer have to say Union Jack or Union Flag. It's the same thing. Basically, the European flag, listener Alan Drake informs us, is entirely legit after 31st of January. So good news for everybody. And it's not, in fact, the EU flag. Yeah, it's That's not Europe. what it is. So That's when people say that, that's wrong. It's the European flag. It should still be flown and respected, says Alan. Fly it and I sit in the Council of Europe. I'm going to go and find that box. <laughs> Give Alan Drake a knock and say, I want to see the original European flag. I demand so. Great idea. There you go. That's brilliant. I was in Sussex last week and there was an enormous EU flag flying in a gar- someone's garden. I was really impressed. I thought this is fantastic. <laughs> anyway, we've reached the end of the show, which means it's time to place something in the Brexit time capsule. Over the last two years, we've been filling it with things we thought we'd need if we ever left the EU. But now we know it's definitely happening a week on Saturday. Ian Murray, next week... We're adding suggestions from our listeners to the capsule. So you are the last ever guest who gets to pick something oh, to go pressure. in. Mm. Yeah, I know. What what will it be? Can I put two things in? Yeah, of Seeing I'm the last one. Yeah. I'd like to put some insulin in, please, just in case anybody with diabetes <laughs> requires it. Post to 31st of January. And given Jacob Rees-Mogg came out of a time capsule, I think we should put him back in. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Ordinarily, we'd have the foreign language clip here, but listener David Landon Cole says, I thought it might be nice to have a clip in English before the island that cradled the language leaves the EU. I've recorded a clip from John Donne that might be particularly appropriate for Marc Francois. Mm. Given his campanological proclivities, that's not a phrase I thought I was going to say yeah. today, <laughs> campanological proclivities. No man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, said not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. And that's the show. Thanks to Ian, Alex and Ingrid, and thank you to Ian Murray. Are you doing anything nice for Burns Night? Yes, I'm meeting Haggis and I've got three bun suppers this weekend. Oh, oh fantastic. That's great. Lots of whiskey then. Hate the stuff. Can't even smell it. <laughs> Is that so? Genuinely, yeah. My father was a cooper and used to smell of the neat stuff. So I, I've got a, uh, an internal problem with my brain of even smelling the stuff. I'm in exactly the same camp. I can't even do brandy or cognac or anything sort of whiskey-based. It just made, revolts me. Wow. Yeah. I love vodka, though, so listeners, send in (laughs) Everything you just said is wrong. (laughs) Now it's time for our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop. 
We'll be back next week to help you grin and bear it during Brexit week. Ingrid, you've got a little announcement, haven't you? Oh, yes. I mean, I don't want to make a big thing of it, but um, no, I, I, yeah, I won't be uh, doing the show for a bit because I'm Aww. flying off to South Africa to do some more filming and then uh, thought I'd put my words into practice and uh, try and put some positive things out into the world. Not that this isn't a positive podcast because it very much is um, and do some more writing. So I will be back, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. We'll and then for the you. rest of your lives. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't be a stranger. And I'm off to Greece, and I'm not sure at all I will be back, if I'm honest. Oh. But no, I will be back, obviously. Say it, say it. To sell so. my flat. <laughs> no, everyone's leaving. If you don't get the debut, deputy Labour leadership, do you fancy being a host? Dropping like The chances of me getting the deputy leadership are about as slim as the UK staying in the European <laughs> Union. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you've said you don't like whiskey, that is it. You aren't even allowed to say that as a. Never mind. Here's some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. It's hello from me to Cameron Mellows, Milo Cullinan, Mark Richards, Ariana Halshaw, Valerie McDermott, Georgia Kay, Kirsten Cable, Claudia Rutherford, Jake Carson, and Izzy Mant. Many thanks from me to Letitia Kemp, Helen Bowman. Will Rose, Warren Alexander, Michael Daly, Paul Chandler, Samantha Nightingale, Bryony Stentiford, Sophie Tyler and Matt Naylor. Uh, hello and thanks from me to Ronald Reed, Emma Pomeroy, Catherine Pugh, Andrew Thorne, Lily Cleary, Dana Drake, Michael Delaney, Richard Wilson, Joel Medrington and Petrock Gill. And best wishes from me to Jean-Baptiste Heimsot, Ian Redfern, Mikhail Marquez, Alexander Vaness, Martin Davis, Christoph, Alex Cruden, Simon Evans, Kate Scrays and Alex Harris. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Ros Taylor with Alex Andreu, Ian Dunt and Ingrid Oliver. Audio production scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.